Welcome to the Winner Circle with Derek Pang. On this podcast, I'll be introducing you to real-world heroes who have stepped outside their safe, known worlds to pursue and live their win, their best lives. This is a choice we all get to make. The intention behind these conversations is to inspire you to move forward with greater faith, trust, and belief in yourself on your hero's journey ahead. Let's go, hero. All right, welcome to another episode. I'm back with a really exciting guest. On today's episode, I interview an author. He's a second degree jujitsu black belt under Steve Maxwell. He's the founder of Enclave Jiu-Jitsu. Welcome to the winner circle, Scott Burr. Thank you, I'm happy to be in the winner's circle. Absolutely, and we're gonna discuss what that means just shortly. Right. Um, but the goal, with, the goal with all these episodes um, is to really uplift, inspire, and empower everyone tuning in um, to this frequency, um, to move forward with greater trust, faith, and belief in themselves on their hero's journey ahead. Um, so we're in for a really uplifting, positive conversation. This first question sets it up as such. What do you love about your world right now, Scott Burr? What do I love about my world? Your world. Um, I'm in the external, your world. <laughs> I, I, right now, I'm in the middle of um, a couple of really interesting projects that are really exciting for me. And I'm in, in that part of the process where, you, you know, I'm very much... Uh, still figuring it out as I go. And so every day is very uh, challenging and rewarding. And it's, it's, it's that part of it where, you know, you really, you, you do feel that uh, like energy to get up out of bed and I want to get back to it. I'm, my brain is working on it all the time. So that's, that's really fun right now. You don't always have that. And so it's like, I, I, even though it's like, um, I, I like I find for myself that when I'm in those things, what I'm thinking is that I just want to get this done so I know it turned out okay. But I have to. It, in more recent years, I've sort of learned to appreciate that like life is not always like this, and that these these moments are, where it's it's challenging and interesting are the are the are the are the juice, you know? Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's what we're going to say. What the winner circle is, and to me, what the winner circle means is just that is embracing the process and embracing the juice of the journey rather than being destination oriented when this book is complete i'll be happy when this goal is achieved i'll be happy but no it's the it's the highs and lows along the way that is all all the sweetness yeah um so let's talk about what winning in your life looks like today you say you have some exciting projects going on what are those projects and yeah what does winning look like to you and mean to you in your life what does winning look like to me? Um, you know, I, I can't, I, I, there's a much bigger conversation we could have, I guess, but I, I ended up having a couple of important conversations uh, in the last few years with people where basically we were circling this idea that um, having a valuable life, um, having a rewarding life seems to, for me at least, and I think for, but I think for a lot of people, it centers around doing the thing that only you can do 
and being appreciated for that thing, but also being appreciated for that thing because the thing that only you can do is, is adding something to other people's experience. The, the, the appreciation is not um, just, a, just a, a customer side supply. It's people are genuinely benefiting from the thing that you can do. So when you find yourself in a situation where people are, even if only completely selfishly benefiting from the thing you can do. It's like, <clears throat> like Richard's book. I don't know if you read the, the Breslin yeah. book that we worked on, but that was a situation where all of, you know, so much of the feedback that we got for that book was about what people got, uh, got from that book, you know, how valuable it was to them. And to read that, even though they're not saying, oh, thank you so much necessarily. They're just saying, I got so much out of this book. It is so rewarding to hear that, to see the efforts that you put in validated in that way. And there's a, there's a very specific quality to that relationship where you're doing, you're supplying the thing that, that only you can supply and that, that is the thing that you want to be working on. And, and it's being received by people who, who, are, who are appreciating it in that way um that that's that's kind of the sweet spot as far as far as i'm understanding it at the moment so that's what that's what winning looks like to me doing doing the thing that i can do and that i feel driven to do but also having that land in a context where people it's adding something in the in the community and that's you know you get into like sort of a a dual feedback loop with that um the project I'm working on right now is I'm working with um, Chris Howder. I don't know if you know that name. No. Uh, Chris Howder is one of the, the Dirty Dozen. He's one of the first uh, 12 non-Brazilian non uh, BJJ black belts. He got his black belt from Higan Machado in 96. Uh, I, think, I think it was 96. Um, but he's a six degree black belt. He's all around the scene. Um, and so I'm working with him on, on his book right now. And that is really uh, an, an interesting uh, project. He's had a really crazy life and we're trying to do some really interesting things with that story. Um, so hopefully it all <laughs> comes together. I don't even want to say too much about it because I, I kind of like, I want to see how it turns out. But... And that's going to be a memoir? Uh, that'll be a memoir? Yes. Yes, okay. it's been sort of a genre-bending memoir. Okay. You, well, you've written a few memoirs already. You've written um, Blood in the Water, America's yeah. Assault on Innovation. Um, that's Kip Azoni Doyle's uh, memoir. You've also wrote the one you just mentioned, Worth Defending, How Ju Gracie Juju Saved My Life by Richard Bresler. Yeah. Um, and I want to get into a bit of your story on um, the starting of how you got into jujitsu. So you started teaching in 2006 while you're as a white belt. Yeah, um, basically, and, yeah. And now you're second degree black belt. You also have your black belt in Kodakon Judo, first degree black belt in Kuksudo. Um, so yeah, let, where did this martial arts journey enter your life? Uh, you so... Six uh, BJJ start. Um, is, could you repeat that last thing? Yeah. So, like, just let's talk about your your martial arts journey, including your start in BJJ in two thousand six, and then also before that and beyond that. Okay. So, in in when I was in high school, uh, 
uh, I was kind of like, you know, kind of an angry, alienated kid, you know? And uh, I was looking, I, I thought I wanted to learn how to, to box or kickbox. And I couldn't, I didn't see anything around me that was offering that. And I had a friend who was doing martial arts at the time at a, an academy in our town. And he's like, why don't you come to a class with me? And that was Kuxeldo. And so I ended up going to a class with him and I basically was there for every class after that. Like I was just completely hooked and went through white to black belt in Kuxeldo. Um, got my, I went away to college um, in Colorado. I would come back and I would train when I was there in Colorado, kind of train with the Taekwondo club and then come back and keep training. And I eventually got my black belt in, in that style in 2002 or three. And then when I graduated from college and I came back home, everybody at that school was kind of getting hooked on MMA and MMA was really blowing up. The ultimate fighter had just come out. So that was like 2005, 2006. And so the head instructor, uh, my buddy Jason, he he was like, well, this is this is what's up. Like we got like, cause Kuxeldo is really, it's a great style. It's really a beautiful style and it has a lot of great stuff in it, but it's primarily a um, kicking, punching and standing joint lock martial arts. There's no, there's very limited grappling. Uh, there is some throwing, but it's not, it, it's typically not trained with the kind of randori aspect that you get with judo. So it's, it's still a little more rudimentary. Um, so we all started to, okay, we got to learn, we got to learn Muay Thai, we got to learn BJJ. And Jason hooked up with a, um, a BJJ instructor. There was, a, there was a, a purple belt, Donald Park, who's a Hoyler, uh, student of Hoyler's in, uh, in Cleveland. And he hooked up with, started training with, with Donald, Jason did. And then Donald ended up moving to Chicago and uh, this guy named Darren Branch took over who was a blue belt at the time. And he took over that school. I started training with Darren and then Darren started coming and teaching at our facility. And um, at the same time, Jason and all of us were getting really excited about MMA. So Jason basically decided, hey, I wanna, I wanna open an MMA gym that goes along with the, with the Cooksville Academy. And so he rented out the, the next door unit and put in a cage and heavy bags and he had Darren coming in and then a kickboxing instructor named Ryan Madigan coming in. And then I was sort of sort of doing kind of like a floating like general MMA and um, workout classes teaching in that space with the three of us. And then kind of as the the customer interests sort of determined what was what people really wanted, because as it turns out, people don't love getting punched in the face. Um, it's not, it's not, it's a hard sell, especially in a town like ours. Um, so the interest was more in the jujitsu and the, the workouts. And so I eventually started, you know, I like learn more and I ended up taking over classes. It just, things worked all kinds of different ways. We eventually hooked up with, um, Steve, Steve was, um, kind of on his never ending seminar tour at the time. He had a sprinter van back then. And he was driving across country sort of back and forth and he uh a, a woman who was training with us had had hooked up with him because she wanted to get a kettlebell certification and so she went to philly met him and then he was like well i'm driving across country she was like come to our school teach a seminar and we met we all hit it off uh steve we've been training for like two and a half years in jujitsu at that point steve met us he promoted 
uh, Jason and I to Blue Belt. We got our Blue Belts at that seminar. And then we kind of were under Steve um, from there through, uh, through Black Belt. Amazing. Um, Steve is a man I very much admire um, and have been training and following his videos and just really inspired by his philosophy, not only at martial arts, but in, at life. What are some of the lessons you've learned from Steve? Um, doesn't have to be martial arts related, but just some important lessons that he's left with you. Yeah, so I, I, I was on a podcast one time where somebody asked me a similar question. And the answer I gave him, I think, is still the right answer, which is that I, I've known Steve for a really long time now. Um, like I met him in 2008 and I spent a lot of time with him, right? He, he would come through and then eventually I started traveling with him. Mm -hmm. um, I just talked to him a couple of days ago, actually. Um, and he's, he just turned 70, if you can believe that. He's like, he's doing awesome. Um, but, you know, what I said was in the time that I've known him, he has changed so many things about his training philosophies and his approach to jujitsu and his, um, even philosophies about life and, and, you know, kind of what his priorities are. And you, you know, you look at that and you say, well, that's, that's very natural. And then you, you look around you and it's so, so common. You know, I met him when he was in his mid or early fifties. And it is so incredibly common to meet people at that age who have just stagnated you know, what they think is what they think, and they're not evolving, and they're not growing, and they're not learning. And Steve has, has been the, the absolute opposite of that. Steve has continued to, to learn and grow and evolve. And it's, I think that the lesson of seeing somebody do that, right, that is such a valuable lesson, because I think and especially for somebody in his position where people are looking at him as an authority figure and are and are maybe looking to look at him and go, well, you said this on Tuesday and now it's Friday, you're saying something different. To 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 recognize that the highest the highest sort of virtue is the ability to to grow and to learn and uh, to see that model and to have that be the the model that I'm the, the you know my my mentor was 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 uh, modeling that was this I recognize how valuable that's been in my life you know especially as I was in a in a teaching position uh, for a long time to you know I, I think a lot of the I used to I used to tell people um, people would ask me questions in class you know and I'd say look you know I'm gonna give you the best answer I have. Um, and in six months, my answer may be different. And that one, it's very honest, right? Because I don't know everything, even though, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm always trying to learn. I certainly don't have all the answers, no matter how many degrees or whatever I have. And, um, it, you know, you see people get in these positions where they feel like they constantly have to, that it's, that it, 
undermines their authority if they ever change their mind or change their position. And it, it's, it's destructive to their, to their growth, obviously. Mm. And so having a, having a culture, cultural tone around the process of, of this, this art and this undertaking that was based on, you know, the, the, the goal is to continue to learn. You're never, you're always a student, you know, you'd be a student first. People say, keeping a white belt mindset, right? And I, and I think Steve really does that. Um, and that's, I mean, that's an incredibly valuable thing, incredible, incredibly valuable lesson I've learned from him. And that's beautiful. And that's a really special relationship that you've got to um, watch each other evolve and grow over the years. Yeah. Um, and that's a huge takeaway that he left you with. And you've been coaching, you've been coaching a long time um, since those early days. And now you have Enclave Jiu-Jitsu. Um, what are the things most important to you um, as a coach? How are the best ways to be a good coach and to serve others? Because I know being of service is very important to you. How, yeah, that's a good question. Uh, honestly, I, mean, I don't... I don't think of myself as a very good coach. I don't think I've been a very good coach a lot of my coaching career. Um, I wrote a piece one time where I, I, I sort of talked about, I think there are two approaches to coaching and it may be bigger than coaching, but it, it, it seemed like there, there's an approach that says, I'm gonna set, this high bar and I'm going to be um, merciless about it, about, about, I'm not, I'm not going to apologize for having high standards and I expect you to come meet me where I am because I have the goods, you know? Um, so that's one approach. And the other approach is I come meet you where you are and whatever you need to hear, whatever you need to be built up, I can do more good by meeting you where you are than telling you where I am. Yeah. And I've had, I know that my view on which of those is better and which of those is my job has evolved as I've gotten older, right? So there was definitely a time where my mentality was, okay, my job is to be the badass and, you know, kick you down and, and make you get back up. Um, and you can justify that in terms of a lot of things. You can say, okay, we're, you know, if, if look, there's a, there's a mentality and I don't necessarily think it's the wrong mentality that says jujitsu is a martial art in which not everybody gets a black belt. It's, yeah. I mean, it's, it's not. So no matter what people want to say, jujitsu is for everybody. No, it's not. You're going to get your head bounced off the floor. You're going to get your ears messed up. You're going to get your face smashed in. If you want to step up and meet those challenges, you get to one day become a black belt, maybe. If you don't, you don't. So I see the value in that mentality. And I see the value in, certainly it has made the martial art very strong. And we can see in other martial arts, the more we tailor them to meet the let's not even call them the limitations but just the willingness of the student body the weaker the martial art gets so that's certainly not what we want to do 
Um, at the same time, if the question is, look, Jigoro Kano's goal with judo, he had, you know, sort of several goals, but one of them was the development of the individual. It wasn't about making the baddest ass group of students who could just go out and be tough guys, right? In fact, it was somewhat, you could say the opposite, that jujitsu had developed this, this, this reputation that almost similar to what maybe MMA has now, where you're, you're training a bunch of thugs and these guys don't have the martial ethics. They just have the tools of fighting. Yeah. And so he said, no, I want to bring, I want to bring this back to, to an ethical pursuit. And I want to focus on developing individuals, no matter what your potential is, you can, you can benefit. And if every citizen of this country develops from where they are to where they could be, regardless of any objective standard, we're all going to benefit. Okay. And so if your goal with judo or with jujitsu is how much betterment can I make in the world? How many people can this impact in a positive way? Then I don't necessarily think the the coaching mentality of you know here's the bar. Uh, if you can reach it, good for you. If you can't, there's the door. That's not necessarily a culture that encourages or is set up to achieve that goal. I don't really know. I mean, I know that I I can say for sure that there have been students that I was supportive of when I should have been harsher with. And I can say that there were students that I was harsh with that I should have been more supportive of. And the process of learning that, uh, it's, been an, it's been an ongoing process. And, and, and I would say, you know, I'm, I, I was not always good at it. Um, I honestly, I mean, I have a lot of regrets about the way I, I ran. So I ran that, that, that gym that, that I was telling you about that Jason started, I ran that from basically 2007 when it opened, when I was sort of teaching general classes to we closed it in 2019. And I have, I have a lot of regrets about how I, I ran that gym. And basically part of closing it was just that <laughs> my regrets kind of won. You know, I was like, I, I'm, I, I'm not necessarily very good at this, and I need to, uh, I need to, to, I, in, until I, until I am, I probably need to step away from the general public. Mm -hmm. And that's a good thing to acknowledge and to do, and it takes courage to do to do that after being involved for such a long time, and it's allowed you space to create your own gym, and that's Enclave Jiu Jitsu. What is your mission at Enclave Jiu-Jitsu? Um, and what is the ethics you're trying to teach there? So the Enclave Jiu-Jitsu, the idea is, I mean, the idea really was that I, I felt like in, in very much in, in the vein of what I was just saying was that I, I needed a space to, to, to be a student uh, both of jujitsu and of, I, I don't, I don't even know my relationship with jujitsu, my relationship with, with, with coaching, my relationship with coaching other people, my, my, my role as a teacher. I just, I really felt like I had been, 
you know, it's like the only, um, it's like I started, I started teaching there when I was like 20, 24, 25. And that was kind of the, the main job I had as an adult. And I, I felt like I had just kind of gone along doing it without necessarily being particularly mindful of how I was doing it, even though I was putting a lot of thought into the actual content. Um, and so I, I just felt like I, and, and, and another part of it was that I just felt like there were aspects of the jujitsu culture at large that I was not feeling very connected to. Um, as jujitsu became very, um, the sport has really taken over and uh, I was never a big sport competitive guy. Um, I, I always sort of felt like for me, the martial arts occupied sort of a different a part of part of my life that I was, yeah. that it was about um, the growth and personal development and the personal challenge of it. And, but kind of in a, in a, in a personal way, it wasn't in a way where I needed to, to go out and, and um, win tournaments. Yeah. Necessarily do these things. It wasn't, it, it, the, the, I'm not, I'm certainly not saying there's anything wrong with that. I'm saying that I recognize it for myself. That was never something that appealed. It was never the draw. And so uh, it's, it started to make more sense that I would have a, a space that was a little bit removed where um, the students that I really felt like I had productive training with and a productive relationship with, I could kind of keep working with them and then maybe um, you know, I'm, I, it, it was a situation where also where I was feeling like all of that, all of what I just said, I was in a situation where I was going to have to compete um, in terms of just the market share, sort of marketing the value of that against the value of like, I won this tournament, I post my picture on Instagram, da, 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 and I was like, I can't really sell this in a marketplace that wants these these sort of um let's call it flashier things and i was yeah. like oh, maybe there isn't a place uh for what i'm doing or, or the way i'm approaching this in uh in the 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 TikTok generations marketplace and so maybe i'll just stop going stop trying to be that square peg that's trying to go in that round hole and just say that's a round hole it's going to be over there i'm going to go over here with my square peg yeah so. and with your square peg like what what are the what are the primary philosophies you're trying to embed in those that you work with like what are those ethics what is that those self-development um specifically um I think, I don't, you know, I guess you, you, I guess to answer that, I'd have to have a really, I'd have to have a lot of awareness around what my own sort of personal ethics are. Uh, mm. Because the, the practice in here is basically just a projection of my own preferences, but it, it, it has a lot to do with this expectation of personal 
responsibility for your own growth yeah and a willingness to sort of i don't even know if it's a willingness i find for myself that my happy place is going way down a rabbit hole um and i i will go into minutia around things and as long as it, there's a knot to untangle there i that that is that is where my flow state time disappears you know i'm i'm just in it kind of thing happens mm-hmm. and so there is a a, a I don't, I don't even, I don't even know. There's a, um, I guess, because it sort of ties in with, with the writing thing, which is that there is something profound that happens when you are grappling with the limits of your own understanding and ability. And it is something that I would call profoundly ethical even though it doesn't necessarily isn't necessarily something that I would call moral, right? Where it's not about, oh, it's it's a morally virtuous thing that I'm trying to improve my armbar. Okay. That yeah. it's, doesn't really have a moral quality necessarily. It doesn't even have a moral context necessarily. You just have to apply one or invent one or create one. But that the ethics of or the aesthetic of constant refinement toward an elusive perfection as the the artistic modus operandi there's something in that that is the the nature of of the way this place functions for me but again it's the same way i approach um writing for example which you know so to, I would hate to say something as glib as it's like a spiritual practice, but it's it's more. It would be easier to describe it in those terms than in the terms of like, I'm trying to make people who you know have a strong sense of patriotism or something. You know what I mean? It's not. It's. it's I don't know if that answered anything close to your question. No, but it got it got me thinking, and um, I think that's what's important, and that's what I think you do a lot with your writing is you get people thinking, you looking at the external, but also looking at the internal, and you're a graduate of the creative writing program at the Colorado College, yes. um, and you've authored so many books. Um, you've authored novels, short stories, training manuals, and the memoirs that we talked about earlier. So let's kind of examine how that entered your life and was writing a part of your life ever since you're young yes yes they i i somebody told me one time that whatever you wanted to do when you were five is pretty much who you are and when i was five i think i wanted to write comic books so yeah i mean it's it, there's there's an interesting way that like i kind of it's like oh, okay on the one hand you went off to write stuff and on the other hand you tried to become batman you know what I mean? So it's like, yeah, I guess I, I guess I kind of ended up doing what I wanted to do when I was five. Um, but no, I mean, writing, I, I was always, I was more of an arts kid than I was a, an athlete when I was in school. 
Um, it was a lot of visual arts for a long time. Um, and then I got, as I got older, I was, um, yeah, in fact, I, I was forgetting about, I forgot about this, but I was in like a, a writing competition club in like middle school. And then I was writing all through high school. And then when I went to college that, yeah, obviously that was sort of decided on, I wanted to major in. Um, mm. and, and then I just kept, yeah, kept working on that. And you were balancing um, coaching jujitsu, coaching MMA and writing. Is that the case? Um, like, what was your, like, when, so you graduated from your program and then when was your first book? How did that all come up? Like, I first heard about you with your suspend, your disbelief um, training oh. manual, like yeah. suspension system with Steve Maxwell. That's when I first heard of you and saw you on his videos there. But yeah, when did your, like, so how do you start publishing your work? Like, how did you become a published author and write all these number one um, Amazon bestsellers? And yeah, that's like, how did, how did that, how did that, or number one new release, sorry. Um, no, I had one, one bestseller. <laughs> Richard's book became a number one bestseller. Yeah. Um, so how did it start? You you were writing, doing these middle school writing competitions, but how did you make this as an income source? And how did you get start publishing it so so many years could see um, whether listen to audible or to uh, um, our eyes could read the written print? So the so I my, basically for let's call it the what year is it now 2022 so between 20 2006 when i basically you know i kind of spent like a lot of time on the road that year after college and then i was back and i started we started training jujitsu and mma and all that Ooh. so basically from then until we closed the gym it would look like the following i would wake up I would make a pot of coffee. I would write until I was out of coffee, which was usually around noon. Then I would go run errands. Then I would go to the gym and I would teach in the evening. And that would just repeat pretty much. And every day, whether or not I had the gym or not, uh, it was, I wrote every morning. Um, so I wrote a lot of different things. I, you know, I wrote a lot of fiction that was really um bad i wrote a lot of um i wrote i wrote uh, a fitness blog or like a you know that that superhero simplified blog for a long time trying to just kind of share some of the ideas that i was talking about at the gym um i wrote those training manuals i wrote i had a job writing uh gags for a uh, comic strip you know, you write like three panel jokes. Um, I'm trying to think of other stuff. I had a job writing uh, summaries of like, uh, like there would be, you basically writing cliff notes of like business books that are coming out to for, for this company to give to uh, executives is like, I don't know, uh, uh, everybody's staying abreast of like what's current with the, uh, in the, in the business culture, but they don't have time to read these books. So I'd write these summaries. Um, so, but I was, I was writing all along and, you know, I was also fielding 
uh, as we all do, a heck of a lot of rejection notices from uh, publishers and agents and magazines, because among other things, the thing I was trying to write, which is, I mean, my main focus was on uh, what's typically called like just literary fiction. It's not, it's non-genre non fiction. Um, it's a very hard sell, you know, it's, it's, there are, there are well-defined markets for a lot of genres and yeah. there are well-defined markets for a lot of nonfiction genres, but there aren't, you know, who reads literary fiction once in a while, something punches through, but for the most part, it's very hard to sell. So people are hesitant to publish it or represent it. And, and eventually I got to this point where I was, you know, I was very frustrated and I happened to run into, I was actually back uh, at a college reunion and a, uh, a kid I had graduated with was working for Amazon and I was talking to him about what I was doing and he was like well you know we have this this um, print on demand platform that is that they were kind of just starting up at that time and um, he said you should look into this it's really pretty cool and um, I really didn't want to you know it's like I, I had a, all these romantic ideas about Oh uh, no, I want to I want to have a publisher who's going to fly me to New York and I'm going to have these meetings and I'm going to sit there in my tweed jacket and I'm going to, you know what I mean, all this stuff. Um, but eventually, you know, clearly nothing was happening. I had these novels um, that that I, you know, I had, I had this this stuff that I'd written that was just sitting there and I was like, well, okay, worst case scenario, if I start trying to put these things out myself. Um, maybe somebody's going to, you know, maybe it'll sell, maybe it'll find an audience, or maybe it'll find an agent or a publisher who says, no, this is, you know, we like this, let's, so it's like, if, it, if it's out there, it's at least out there. If it's sitting in my drawer, I know exactly what's going to happen with it, right? Nothing's going to happen. So I started teaching myself basically formatting, editing, design, graphic design, all these different things. And, um, you know, eventually just just learned learned how to do all these things and started putting these things out. Basically, it, it's a really interesting moment. I don't know how much you know about the the publishing industry in general, but the way I always, I mean, it's sort of it's it's obviously really changing, and there's some really interesting things happening in that there is such a competition for streaming content that it's actually in some ways it's a really good time to be trying to produce content because people are scooping stuff up. Uh, at the other, on the other hand, just like, you know, and everything else, there's a ton of stuff out there and there's a ton of, no, I mean, trying to promote this podcast, how many podcasts are out there to try to punch through is hard, right? Um, but you can do it. And if you build up your dedicated followership and you connect with an audience, social media and all these different things give you an unbelievable ability to connect with an audience. And so I used to say, Basically, a, a publisher does five things for you, and I think it's five. Right? It's they'll uh, edit, they'll format, they'll design a cover, they'll produce and distribute, and they'll promote a book. Those are the five things a publisher does, right? So yeah. basically, they produce the book, they distribute the book, they promote the book. And so produce the book involves cover design, formatting, editing, layout, revision, all that stuff. Yeah, you've learned that yourself. Yeah, it's like, so if you, if you learn, if you can do those things yourself, right? If you can 
learn how to design if you can, if you can be a good editor if you can hire an editor um and you can you know sort of be as cutthroat as you need to be with yourself about your own work which is hard um if you can become a good proofreader if you have a decent aesthetic sense and you can do formatting and design um Amazon's print-on-demand platform covers production and distribution in an incredible way. Um, it's a really fascinating and exciting model. Um, and this is how, P.S., this is how we did Marty's book, right? I yeah, did the, the format and the cover design. And then Amazon is printing and distribution. And then Marty, as, as with all of us, Marty's in charge of his promotion, right? So with of the five, the, the biggest one actually that a publisher provide and it, I mean it's it's a more important one than the other four almost is the promotion a publisher is able to put a ton of weight behind any promotional effort. Um, so that's the big uh, puzzle to solve when you are publishing your own stuff. Um, but like, for example, with with Richard's book, we have a very clear market. With Chris's book, we're going to have that same market, and then Chris obviously has has his own sort of combat-based brand that has a following. Yeah. Drysdale had a tremendous following with his book. People were already anticipating that that um, documentary coming out. There's still, you know, a lot of buzz around that. Uh, Kip's book. There are there's a there's a um, a very motivated group of patent rights advocates who are who, who were putting their weight and their their support behind that book um, and so there are these ways that because you have the the connecting power of the internet and social media you can do a lot of that work um, at a level that you know you don't you're not gonna sell probably a million copies but you can you can reach your audience and you can you can have a book that that sells uh, reasonably well. Um, yeah. But it, I mean it's an it's an ongoing it's an ongoing thing and like anything else you know like I don't know do you have a TikTok for this podcast? I don't no, have a TikTok for any of my. No, I don't. I need to have it because it's like the thing. Or somebody was telling me, what's the new one that's like the we probably need a be real. Now we need a. Be real. <laughs> I don't know. We we need to know more about this. I don't know. Right now, I'm just focused on um, putting out content that is true to me um, and authentic to me. And like most important, I think, is just putting it out. And I think that's a, a, a step that a lot of people, uh, authors, like they, if, you, if you just keep it in your drawer, it's not going to get out there. Um, what do you feel is like the biggest barrier to entry stopping someone that wants to publish their work to get it out there? And uh, how, how do they push past that barrier? Um, well, yeah, I mean, interestingly enough, I'd say, and, and obviously there are different facets to that. Somebody who already has something written, I would yeah. say probably the anxiety, the fear, the fear of judgment, all those things are, are a hurdle. I would say somebody who hasn't written their thing yet, probably the enormity of the task. Um, so depending on which point in the journey someone's at, I would say that, you know, like anything else, 
the big the best way to accomplish a big goal is to turn it into a hundred little goals mm -hmm. and i mean i i can still remember one of the most it, it was it was really um i was so into i wrote my first novel when i was 22. Ooh. i was a senior or i was a senior in college and i'd never written anything longer than like 20 pages and I was so intimidated by the undertaking, which, I mean, I've, I've written a lot of books now. Uh, and, and, it's, and it's kind of funny to think it's like, I was so intimidated by that. I just like, I was ready to, there were days I was ready to give up before I even had tried, right? And so one of the first things I did was I set a very, achievable quota of writing 500 words a day which you know depending on your formatting is maybe like a page of eight and a half by 11 just word 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 processing page um it's not a ton of words but if you do that uh for an extended period of time eventually i mean a novel they say a novel starts at around uh 50, words Right. So how many, it's not complicated. I think that's a hundred days. I think, think 500, 500. Yeah. I think that's a hundred days. I think a hundred days. Yeah. So, I mean, the, there are, and, and okay, it's going to be garbage, right? I just, every day I need to write 500 words, even if it's terrible, yeah. even if, Today, all I can come up with is 500 words describing the couch in this room. And it's not gonna have, I, I know I'm gonna cut it later. As long as I hit my quota every day, I'm gonna, those bricks are gonna keep stacking. Um, and eventually what I found, and I think what everybody finds when they do this is that you end up doing way more than that. And you, you exceed your goals and you exceed your expectations and, um, and things that previously seemed insurmountable suddenly become taken for granted. Of course, I'm going to do that. It's not a big deal to me anymore. So you, mm -hmm. it's like it's like um, it's like an interesting analogy with with like lifting, right? Which is that your brain regulates how much force your muscles generate, right? So there's this there's this conversation happening between your your brain and your muscle because your, your brain wants to keep you from hurting yourself right so it won't if it can stop you from pulling so hard that you're going to tear a tissue it'll stop you but your brain doesn't necessarily know where the point of damage is and then where the point of let's call it fear of damage starts yeah, yeah. and in the buffer in the space between those is your growth potential and so you have to sort of trick your brain into doing more than it thought it could do in order for it to realize, oh, I can do that. And that's no longer something I'm going to stop myself from doing. Ooh. And so I think one of the interesting things, and, and this is sort of an aspect of coaching, is that an analogy I use a lot of times is like, you don't ask your five-year-old to drive to the store and get you groceries because he'll fail right that's not an appropriate challenge right but if you set a challenge that's just beyond what he's currently capable of 
that is a, a thing where I don't know if I can do it, but I can imagine it's close enough where I can imagine doing it. Ooh. And once I've done it, now I have a new floor. I have a new ground. And now my next goal is just a little bit beyond that. So setting appropriate goals for yourself so you're not daunted, but you're also not bored, right? Getting in that middle zone, it's a little bit like they say, um, the, I've heard the flow state described as the, the, the marriage of skill and challenge, right? Mm -hmm. That when you're right in the pocket where your challenge is at the level of your skill, you have to be totally present. If your challenge is too easy, your brain can do something else, you'll drift off. If the challenge is too hard, you'll give up, you'll despair, and you'll, your brain will shut off in the other direction. But when your challenge and your abilities are sort of right there toggling on each other's edges, mm -hmm. that's when the magic all happens. And so goals to me work very much in that same way. You need a goal that's big enough to be inspiring, small enough to be achievable, but not something you've done before. You know what I mean? And so I think, I think a lot of, a lot of that is, is, is true of, of anything, but obviously if you're, if you're going to write, you know, it doesn't even matter. You say, okay, I can, I can write 200 words a day. I can write for an hour a day. I'm going to make myself sit in front of the computer for an hour a day, whatever, mm -hmm. whatever it is, that's more than you currently do, but not so much where you go, well, I'm never going to, you know, I, it's like people who talk about where they go like, oh, I'm in terrible shape. I need to start working out. Okay. I'm going to start working out five days a week. No, you're not. No, you're not. You may want to, and I may want you to, but you're not going to because it's yeah. too far from where you are. Yeah. You're going to try it once. It's not going to fit with your life. And there's going to be too many factors that sort of make this crumple. But if you say, no, I have, you know what? I always have half an hour between when I wake up and when I actually have to start getting ready. So in that half an hour, I'm going to make myself do 10 squats, 10 push-ups, 10 pull-ups, 10 crunches. That's it. Every day I'm going to do that. I can do that before I do anything else. Well, then I bet you're going to find that next time you do 20, next time as, as time goes by, no, I like it. I'm going to make sure I wake up earlier so I can do more. So having, having things that are, you're not there, but you can see them, right? Mm -hmm. And you talked about two examples. So you talked about the example of someone that wants to write a book that who hasn't started and someone who wants to like release what, what they have. Um, but they, they've written, they've sat down, they've written those 500 words each day, but now they have all this writing and they don't know what to do with it. Um, how does your process of writing a book look like? Do you have a vision of, okay, this is where I want to start. This is where I want to end. This is kind of the idea of this book or what's the process of that book creation beyond of the setting the small goals and just the sitting down and doing the work every day like how, how do you frame um your book it depends very much on what the book is um if it's a novel yeah uh, yeah if it's if it's if it's a fictional book it it may involve, um, you know, at this point, it's kind of like I could, I think I can probably plot out the six main plot points and that's enough for me. I kind of know where my, where my touchstones are. It's kind of like, I don't plan every, 
every turn if it's um i you, you know actually regardless it, it has a lot to do with organizing what the for me for me what it, it has a lot to do with organizing what the whole thing is and then uh figuring out um you know, I, Drysdale and I had a bunch of conversations about this when he was sort of trying to figure out what to do with his. And, and I, yeah. I would, I described it a lot of times as like, um, if you're going to build a house, there's a point at which it doesn't make a lot of sense to pick out the couch, right? It doesn't make a lot of sense to, to figure out, you know, what color you're going to have the carpet because you don't have a house yet. So your job right now is to figure out the big structure, right? Yeah. What's the general layout? What's the general size? Okay, once we have that big shape, we can sort of figure out what rooms are in it. Okay, you, this room is gonna basically, this is your introduction. In my introduction, I need to say these things. Okay, my introduction is gonna kick me into my first chapter. My first chapter is gonna do, it needs to accomplish A, B, C, D. It needs to give me a context. It needs to give me a, uh, a goal. It needs to give me a, 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 an engagement with your voice, your, you as a character. It needs to engage me with the problem. It needs to engage me. It needs to give me a sense of where this is going and what I'm hoping to accomplish. Okay, chapter one, two, three, four, five. It's all kind of building off what we just laid out in the introduction. Yeah. Okay, chapter six, seven, we're going to talk, start talking about what goes beyond what we've talked about. Then probably eight is a conclusion. So that's now we have a structure, okay? Now what goes in each of those things? We have the big bullet points that go in those things, and then we have sort of the, the, the individual language. And once we're getting down to the individual language, we're talking about, you know, what, what do you want your crown molding to be? What do you, you know? So there are, there are tiers of, of building and levels of detail in that you, you, you think in terms of, and I guess, the, those phases, having a clear sense of what happens in each phase of that, to me, in, in my head, you know, the house is the same in each of those phases, but the level of detail that I'm working at is, is, is different. So first, first pass through same house, second pass through same house, more detail, third pass through, it's like, you know, like I said, I was a visual artist more than I was a writer when I was a kid. And one of the first things you learn how to do is, especially if you're going to, I mean, in anything, you know, you have your, your, your frame, you have your piece of paper, you have your, your, your canvas. If you have your idea, you're going to block in your big shapes. Okay, I'm, I'm going to have sort of a piece of furniture here. I'm going to have a figure over here. I'm going to have another figure here. They don't have any features. They're just shapes holding. Okay, now the whole picture's there. Okay, now I go another level of detail. Okay, now I go through another level of detail. And I just keep until until we're down to there's nothing else, there's nothing more to do mm -hmm. in, um, no, I, totally know. I totally hear that and that's like really great how you helped um how you helped exemplify that now but what about for the writer that has written a lot they have booklets and booklets and documents and documents but they don't know they have so much too much they don't know how to condense that um what do you do what do you do about with that situation are we talking about you um, yeah. um, well, I guess it, I guess in that case, probably the first thing I'd say would be, you know, what what is the focus of your book? You know, what's your book going to be, right? What what is all this writing on? Mm -hmm. Life. Life. Okay, so you have a, a series. You have a, a basically an essay collection. Yeah. 
right? Which is which is fine. You, the beauty of an like so my that one superhero simplified book that's just a collection of blog posts. They have yeah. an overarching theme, somewhat in that I had the same goal in 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 approaching that blog, right? I'm going to share some thoughts on, you know, things I've shared with my students or ideas that I think could be helpful to you about training or about your mindset or about how you approach jujitsu, all these different things. And so they're all related, but they're not, um, they're not necessarily thematic. They're not, you know, one doesn't reference the other. They're not chapters building on each other. They're just all separate essays. So that's fine. Um, you know, and I read back through that blog when I was putting that um, that book together. And I said, oh, you know what, some of these, some of these pieces don't really fit. If I want to have a, a book that's really focused on the pieces that are about personal growth and mindset shifts, you know, not all of these are about that. Some of them are just about, here's a good way to put a workout together. So that one doesn't really necessarily go when I know what my, my book is, you know, okay, my, this, this book's going to be about mindset. Uh, yeah. Mostly. Okay. So once you have that big idea, that big okay. bucket, you sort of know what goes in that bucket and what doesn't, what fits with that bucket and what doesn't. Yeah. And then you read, you know, and then you're, look, the, the, somebody once said, um, you know, writing is, is rewriting. The, the fact of the matter is, and, and I, you know, when I work with people, sometimes it's like, you know, I'll say like, don't send me your first draft, send me your 12th draft. Like you should, you're going to read anything you publish you should have read a dozen times start to finish and it should be getting better each time you read through it you should be fixing things so when you're going through that you say you know what some of this is redundant or this piece works better if it follows this piece but these two pieces should probably go later and and all those things become clear as you read them um and that's the other thing is is reading them from the perspective of a reader who is open but has limited time right yeah. i don't want to read from the perspective of a reader who is antagonistic to me okay that's not helpful a reader who doesn't want to hear what i have to say isn't going to read my book so they want to hear what i have to say but they don't have time to listen to me ramble i need okay. to be offering them something okay so when you when you can envision that reader and you can put that yourself in that reader's headspace and read the book from that perspective right i'm i like you i'm willing to hear what you have to say but i don't have time to just you got to be offering me something mm -hmm. when you have that perspective you're going to very quickly start to sharpen what's there and at the end of it you're going to have a book that is is very uh um, con uh, content rich, right? It, 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 you know, you, because you wrote it for somebody who I want to provide you, I want to provide uh, something valuable to you. That's why I'm writing this. That's why I'm putting it out there. I don't expect you to read it just to tell me how great I am. I expect you to read it because you selfishly want what I have to say, right? Yeah. You should, yeah. you should, I should be offering you something. I should be earning your time basically as a writer. That's one of the one of the really big ideas that I, I think is so important is that, you know, for myself, for a long time, I wrote stuff with a mentality that just because I had worked hard on it, somebody should take the time to read it. And the fact of the matter is, not only are they not going to, 
just for that reason. But I wouldn't for that reason, because I have things to do with my life. If somebody came to me and said, I worked really hard on this, you should read it. That's not why I'm going to read it. I'm going to read it because I get something out of reading it. And so when I write with the mentality that I want to give you something, right? And the, I expect you to read this because you're getting something out of it or not read it. It's one of the two, right? Then that starts to really sharpen the focus of what I'm, what I'm looking for and what I'm cutting and what I'm including when I, when I go through it. Mm -hmm. And then it, that also makes me much more confident. So we talked earlier about like, what do you, you know, what do you say to somebody who is maybe anxious about putting something out into the world? Yeah. You say, if I've already read through this 12 times with the focus of, I'm here to give you something valuable, then I'm going to focus on the readers who 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 that 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 I can do that for right not everybody's going to want to read what I have to say but there are but if I if I've written this with the mentality that there are people for whom what I have to say is, is very valuable I'm going to focus on those people are going to find it and those people are going to get something out of it and that's the reward for me is is knowing that that they got something out of it and that they appreciate it in that way because it, it meant something to them so I'm not any more about like I'm le I'm less stressed about the people who are like I don't want to listen to that that guy's that you know I've I've gotten plenty of of bad reviews and people who think that I'm just rambling or you know they're like this guy just talks about himself and it's just like I'm I'm saying something and I'm saying something I I used to tell my students all the time I'm not saying this for for my benefit right the things that I'm telling you I'm not telling you so that I get something out of it. I'm telling you because, you know, like I already have this information. I'm already getting the benefit of this information. If I'm giving it to you, it's because I think you could get something from it. If you wanna hear it, take it. If you don't, then fine, I'll just, I, I don't have to spend the energy to give it to you. But I know yeah. there, are, there are people like I, just the simple fact of the matter is, I, I know a couple of things at this point. I've spent a lot of time trying to learn this stuff. And so there is somebody out there, like maybe potentially you, any of these things that I've just said, where no, what I'm saying is, is giving you maybe a valuable insight or a valuable takeaway that you can take into your own writing projects. And, and that's, that's awesome. And I'm focused on somebody like you rather than the person who's gonna tune into this podcast and say, oh, I'm not a writer. I don't really care what he has to say. Yeah, that's fine. I mean, if you like motocross, you should go listen to a motocross podcast. It's, there's, a pot for every lid, you know, I don't need yeah. anybody's cup of tea because I'm none of us are. Yeah, I appreciate that so much. Um, it brings me it reminds me of something you said at the start of this podcast, and that is about doing the thing that only you can do. And for people listening uh, to this podcast, and this is what a lot of listeners are are struggling to to find, like, what is that thing that only I can do? Like, what is my what is my purpose here on Earth? How? do does one find that um that that one thing that only you can do but that also serves and that's a big part that also gives back it also helps other people yeah yeah <laughs> that's that's the question isn't it um you know i think i so i just turned 40 and i in the last couple of years I reached a point where I said, whether whatever I want to be, 
whatever I would like to think about myself, I can look back at my life and if I step outside of myself and I just see myself as a character in that story, that guy has very consistently done a few things. Yeah. Right? There is a very consistent way he approaches work. There's a very consistent way he approaches art. There's a very consistent way he, for example, tries to dissect situations come up with takeaways, articulate those takeaways in an intelligible and efficient manner and move forward with that information. So that's whether I wanted to be that way or not, that's the way I have proven myself to be. That seems to be what I am. Mm-hmm. And when I can look at myself in that way, I'm going to say, okay, this is what there's, there's an idea. I was having an interesting conversation with my sister and she was telling me about this idea of um, original medicine. Have you heard this concept? So I don't, I don't remember where she picked this idea up from, uh, but it's the idea of basically the world is sick, right? And we know, we know it is people are unhappy. There's all kinds of war and famine and horrible things. And The idea is that every single person has something specific that they can do that is a piece of the cure, right? And so if we all lived our original medicine, the thing that we are, the thing that we are supposed to be doing and giving into the world, we could heal the world that way and i that's you know either you believe that or you don't but the idea that there is something that you are and whatever message you have internalized about who you need to be how you're supposed to look what it means to be successful how much money you need to have what car you need to have when you are able to set all that aside and you say, wait, no, what, what have I always been? What am I? What do I do? What am I? If, when I, um, you know, there are people, for example, who no matter what context they're in, the first thing they start trying to do is connect with the people around them. Ooh. Try to, to form relationships and connections between the people in the group that they're with, no matter where they are right? That's their thing. Now, that's whether they want to be a CEO, a lawyer, whatever, they're going to do lawyer, CEO, any of those things with that thing. And so it's not even there. It's almost like a pre what's your pre ego self? Like, what is the thing that is almost just that, that, that if you can soft focus your mind and forget about all the superficial, my name's Scott, I was born here, I'm this old, I look like this, I've done these things. But what is the thing, the, the through thread of a consistent impulse? If you can be, I think for the most part, you will tell yourself, if you just look at your life, you go, oh, it's obvious, this kid is like this. For as much as he wants to be this other way, this is what he is. If you can look at that without, if you can suspend your judgment long enough to see it, your life will tell you who you are. Ooh. And 
when you can see that and you can say not and again we spend a lot of time in this culture and i don't know about other cultures but in this culture we spend a lot of time telling ourselves that we're the wrong way and that we need to be more like you know steve jobs or we need to be more like that guy or we need to have yeah. the thing that, that guy has and we tend to, and it makes us not want to look at ourselves because we're worried that what we'll see isn't Steve Jobs. But we say, okay, forget all that. Recognize that everybody has the thing that only they can do. And that when they do that thing, they're doing what they can to heal the world. Now it becomes vitally important that I find what that thing is and that I do that thing, whether that's gonna make me a million dollars or it's gonna make me $4. Mm -hmm. I have a moral responsibility to do that thing. And I think the, the way you know you're doing that thing is that you, 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 you have that thing I was describing at the beginning where it's like you, you are waking up excited to do that thing no matter whether it's going to make you money or not. i have no idea if chris's book's going to make me any money or not right i hope it is but like it it is so rewarding in and of itself to do that that challenge and that my brain is so happy my being is so happy picking away at this knot right it is it is it is like the, it, the it's the thing it wants to do Mm -hmm. and if the knot was too complicated, I would get despair. And if it was too yeah. easy, I'd get bored. But it's the right size knot for my brain. And every day when I hang up with you, I'm going to go back to picking at the knot because like I really should go run some errands. But that's what I'm going to do because I'm still it's it's pulling me. And it's like your life starts pulling you when you're when you're doing. I think I think it starts pulling you when you're doing what you're supposed to do. And then there's resistance, there's fear, there's doubt that creeps in, that creeps up. You found, you found, you, you listened to your heart. It's to become a writer. It's to teach jujitsu. It's to um, become a teacher, a coach, whatever. Um, but then there's that fear. There's those voices from your parents, your culture, your society, your religion, et cetera, et cetera, saying, no, this is, this is the safe path. This is what you should do. But there's that must in your heart that's, that's pulling you um how do you step into that how do you say yes what have you learned about that i, I mean I, I, honestly i i don't know i mean it's and I, I like i used to say to people like um you know my my I, my life never I never found myself built into a life that I didn't necessarily feel connected to. Um, there are elements of my life that I have not felt connected to, but it's not like I woke up at 35 with a mortgage and a car payment and a job I had worked really hard to get but didn't really love and two kids that I had to support and you know what I mean it's like, it's I recognize that it's so easy for me to say this um, and that there are, you know, massive hurdles to a lot of people um, to doing what I'm describing. Yeah. Um, 
you know, I, I think, and I, I, I would hate to, to make it sound like I was, you know, diminishing any of that because that that's a challenge I, I have not had to face and, and that I really can't, can't even speak to. It would be, it's not my, not my place to even speak to, but um, I think one of the things that I keep coming back to is that people, a lot of times, it seems like, feel like they don't have any choices in life, right? They find themselves in situations where they don't have choice, where they feel like they don't have choice. And one of the things I try to remind people of is that you can do, you can do anything. Um, there are consequences to everything, but nothing is stopping you from doing anything. And so what you're actually talking about is a, is a negotiation with life, not a, not I'm being dictated by life, what I can and can't do. Life is saying, here's the consequence. If you do that, here's the consequences. And I can make a decision about whether I want to buy that thing for that cost, right? But I'm still the one making that decision. And just those shifts that maybe give us back a sense of our own power in our own existences, which there's so many things that make us think we don't have that. I think, I think if we're going to live our truths, whatever they are, it begins with a sense of my life is mine and I don't know. I mean, I don't know. I, 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 I think a lot of people make themselves really unhappy and I hate to see that. Yeah, and I think they make themselves unhappy for, for reasons that they don't, they don't need to. I, I mean, that, that they took for granted when they were young and they never, saw outside of I mean we you know I was just saying this the other day it's like we made all of this up you know what I mean like not only did we make all of this up we made it up like 70 years ago like modern life the so many of the things that we take completely for granted that we're going to make ourselves anxious and miserable over aren't aren't just made up they're recently made up and for us they feel like you know, you're wearing a, a, a backpack full of bricks. It's like, we are the ones making each other and ourselves miserable, right? There is no, there's no real need for so many of the things we do to each other and mm -hmm. ourselves. And I don't, I am so far from knowing an answer and I am so far from having my arms around the problem, but I just feel like it's all voluntary. At the end of the day, all these, there's so many things that we take for granted that we can't escape when in fact they're, they're, they're voluntary. I mean, I was saying this to somebody the other day. It's like my, I was talking to my one friend and he's like, well, I can't, you know, I can't do this or I can't do that. I can't sell this business because uh, I couldn't get the money out of it that I want. And, 
you know, and it was the conversation was all this like, and I, and I kept saying, it was like, you're telling me the reasons you won't do this, but you're not telling me the reasons you can't do this because you could do this. Yeah. And, and, and I'm not saying that means you should, but what I'm saying is the power is not in the entity outside you. The power is you are making the choice. I'm saying I won't do this for these reasons. But when I say I can't do it for these reasons, those reasons have the, the power. Do you see what I mean? And so it's like, yeah. look, you know, it's like I could sell the business, you know, I want to sell it for this, but I could just, if I sold it now, I'd have to sell off the equipment and I'd get $30,000 for it. And that's not what I know. I was like, if you, you could sell, you know how long you could live in Thailand for $30,000? It's like, and that sounds absolutely insane, but then you do it and in six months, it's just your life. It's just what you do. And it's not even interesting anymore. It's not even, it's just boring. You know what I mean? Yeah. There's so many things. Like there have been things that I've done in, 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 in my life where you go like, when you set out to do them, they sound completely insane. Yeah. And then six months later, like six months later, they're done. Six months later, they're just life. Like, mm. I, I don't want to like, I don't know, like th that's the thing that gets lost so quickly. Like, I don't, we don't need to get into, into a political thing, but like, however you feel about Trump, when he got elected, do you remember that feeling of like, this can't be what's happening. Yeah. And then in six months, it was like, no, this is what life is. Like, yeah, yeah. it felt so, Crazy. like such an aberration. I think even to them, right? They're talking about he didn't expect to get Yeah. And then it was just what we were, it's just life. It's just what it is. Or COVID, right? We couldn't have conceived of what it <laughs> yeah. would have like if the world shut down. And then six months later, it was just what things were. Everything yeah. just becomes the way things are. And we get uh, so trapped in thinking that the way things are is the way they have to be and that they have this power over us. And they, 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 they don't, right? We have to have ownership of, of, of the power over our own existences. And so anything you want to do, I think about, we talk about in original medicine and finding your purpose so that it starts with giving yourself the authority to do that in your own existence. You know what I mean? Absolutely. Thank you so much, Scott. Yeah, um, you, you've blessed me and all the listeners with so much gold and wisdom on today's conversation. We've spent time exploring your past, your present, and the final question, we're going to step into your future. And we're going to transport in time and we're going to be alongside an 85-year-old Scott Bird. Who is that 85-year-old man? Where are you? Who are you surrounded by? What is the legacy that you've left here on your time on earth? And what is the primary feeling in your being? No. Um, boy, I don't know. I, I think when I was younger, I spent a lot of time thinking about my thinking about a, a, the idea of a legacy thinking in terms of my life adding up to something mm -hmm. and i think in the later part of my 30s and and now it's sort of like i i sort of realized like 
I'm much more interested in how do I put this? It's like if the parts of my life don't add up to a whole, add up to one uh, monomyth, right? The, Scott at 32 would have felt like that was not right. But now it, I, I don't care as much. I'm, I, I want to be working on things that are interesting and challenging. That doesn't necessarily mean another novel. It doesn't necessarily mean another memoir. It doesn't necessarily mean anything. It just means I want to constantly be moving forward into something that is new and interesting. And I hope at 85, that's what I'm still doing, even if it's completely random related yeah. to what I'm doing now. Um, and, and the other thing is like, um, I don't know. I mean, there, I don't, I also think when I was younger, I was much more worried about being remembered or leaving something behind. And, and, and somehow now it, it seems like, you know, I don't know. I mean, like millions and millions of people have lived millions and millions, for example, millions and millions of butterflies, billions of butterflies have lived. Yeah. And each one was completely singular and irreplaceable. And each one is gone. And you never knew. And no one ever knew. But that's just the way this is, right? So it ends. It's like, it's a little bit like the, um, I remember <laughs> saying to somebody like, you know that koan about like, if a tree falls in the forest and no one's around to hear it, does it make a noise? Like the thing about that is you are that tree. Right? No one, you, you, you fell in the forest and then existence kept moving and it didn't matter. Yeah. I don't know if that makes any sense, but it somehow it makes totally, sense. It, totally makes, it does make sense. It's just you. It just, it's just you. It's, this, this whole experience in my eyes is just, it's just me. It's my, my perception, my choices, and it, it guides me in different ways. But at the end of the day, it's always just me. And it's how I process this electricity um, that I make into my reality. And I take meaning in that. Mm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So that's what I take from that. You stay with that 85-year-old for a moment. I just want you to picture him in your, in your heart, your mind's eye, and also in your heart's eye. No, I just want you to feel what that feels like to to live the life where you are always excited about what you're doing and um, working on something that you are that lights you up, unraveling knots um, that are capable for you to unravel. Um, and we're gonna bring you back now. We're gonna bring you back to this present, this infinite now. And that 85 year old Scott Burr, he sends you a message. What does that 85 year old man whisper into your heart, into your ear? <laughs> uh, I don't know. It'd probably be something about being nicer to my knees. <laughs> too late. <laughs> That's the jujitsu life. So be nicer to your knees. 
my this shoulders, advice. my elbows, my neck. <laughs> He's going to be one hobbled up old man, I think. Um, yeah, as probably, you know, that, that, you know, I think the, that the more time you spend, you know, somebody, somebody once said that the, the way to stop worrying about whether, what, about what people think about you is to realize that people don't think about you. Yeah. And, and I think the older I get, the more, you know, it's like, there's the part of me that worries about what other people think. And then there's a part of me that knows that they don't think about me. And every year this part gets bigger. And by 85, I hope it's like this. And he's like, no, no, hurry up. Like you're, you're whatever time you spend thinking about this, you're wasting. Just let it go and do, do you, you know what I mean? Yeah, absolutely. Well, I want to let you continue doing you. And I'm so grateful for your time. Um, people wanting to connect with you more, um, they can learn about your, your writing and your books at scottburrauthor.com. Yep. And if they'd like to check out um, your jujitsu facility, your new spot, enclavejujitsu.com. Yeah, um, is how they could find that anywhere else, or is, is that? Well, no, but uh, I mean, I'm available for you know if you're in Northeast Ohio and I'm here, you know, private lessons and and whatever. And then I'm also like on the road a lot, and I'm super happy to come and teach seminars and stuff. Um, so if anybody wants to to uh, to to host me, I'd be more than happy to to come on out. Um, and they can find all the information about that at enclavejujitsu.com. Beautiful. To close every conversation, we bring our fist into the winner's circle for a digital bump. Boom. Boom. <laughs> All right. Yeah. Thank you so much. Thank you, man. This is great.